In this episode, my friend, Dr. Ori Hample sits down with me and he shares his 25 years of experience with life insurance. He has an amazing story. I can't wait for you to hear it. Thanks for listening. We had fun. Welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And if you're a regular listener, you know that I always get excited when people come into the studio and we can have an episode in person and you're in for a special treat today because my friend Dr. Ori Hample is with us for a second time. The first time was episode 10 and I believe he was the very first kind of client episode that we ever did. It was fabulous. I know many of you have heard it and I know many of you have listened to it more than once because you share things like that with me. Thank you. Um, Welcome, Ori. How in the world are you, sir? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Thank you. Perfect. So, you know, he's in town for medical business, and uh, he uh, was gracious enough to carve out some time to come and have a conversation that you're invited to listen to. So, and I'm very appreciative of that, Ori. So, tell us, what has your experience been? I mean, you're the man has an incredible experience that would be very helpful in my opinion if you are considering the infinite banking concept becoming your own banker um or concerned about your finances in general um he has an incredible story so i want you to hear it so please share it thanks james um my name is ori hample i grew up in cleveland ohio or the suburbs of cleveland ohio and that's where I went to college and medical school. And uh, after medical school, the computer matching system told me that I was going to spend six years in Houston uh, doing my residency in general surgery, then urology in, at Baylor College of Medicine, which was great because at the time that was one of the top couple of programs in the country. And uh, so I moved to Houston and learn what heat and humidity really was. <laughs> and, uh, and that's where I met uh, my wife, Daniela. And when you marry a Texan, they're, they're not portable. And Cleveland? so, uh, no, thank you. No, okay. <laughs> she went to school in the Northeast, and no way am I going to snow and cold. So uh, we stayed in the Houston area. And after residency, I, uh, uh, I put up a shingle and went into solo private practice and proved it was still America. Everybody thought I was crazy and they were right. It was ridiculous. Because hard. you went to solo practice? Or? Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard. I, you know, um, I basically worked, was on call every day for three years, seven days a week, except for one week that uh, I took off to do my boards, so it wasn't a vacation, and then one four-day weekend. And that was incredibly hard on uh, my family, on my wife, uh, on my uh, first child when he was very young. So that was a huge sacrifice. And then you know, I uh, brought on a partner and created a group, practice, and... I've been in business now for 25 years as a urologist. Uh, I do surgery. I see patients in the office. I see people in the hospitals. So I'm very, very busy and very, very fortunate. Uh, we're very blessed as far as uh, my medical practice and how busy I am and what I'm able to do. But um, what I really wanted to talk about is uh well it's okay to have is, some background is, just know? to give you the b yeah. quick background but i really want to delve into it is uh that uh a smart man learns from his own mistakes a wise man learns from other people's mistakes so i'm pretty smart and i've made lots of mistakes but i've learned from them so um and that's what made me smart so <laughs> My, my basic philosophy is as a, as a husband, as a father, my first priority is to take care of my family. Sure. So taking care of my family means earning money, you know, putting a roof over our heads and putting food on the table. But it's more than that. It's about protecting the family. 
God forbid, should something happen. And so when we talk about protecting our family, one of the first thing we think about is, is insurance. So um, I got married in 1996, but I started my residency in 1992. So a couple of years into my residency, um, and this was in the early 90s, where we had hepatitis non-A, non-B, which became C later. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> it wasn't A and it wasn't B, so it's got to be something else. There so you go. <laughs> it ended up being C. And we were afraid of this because we had no treatments for it. And the other thing we were afraid of is AIDS because we had HIV patients and we were taking care of them. And we didn't have a lot of treatment options for that disease and it was very scary. So one day I decided to see, well, if something happens to me, I've got a lot invested in this. I went four years to college, four years to medical school. I'm a couple of years into residency, so I'm already 10 years into this. I'm like 28 years old. And if something happened to me, if I got a needle stick and got a disease like hepatitis or AIDS or something, well, I'd be disabled. And so what kind of protection do I have from my employer, which at the time was Baylor College of Medicine? So I was earning very little then. If you figure out the work hours about half minimum wage, which was my first salary as an intern was like 26,000 and some change per year, which isn't a whole lot of money. So I looked all this up and my disability insurance was two thirds of my current income. Wow. So that's about, I don't know, 16, 17 grand a year. That's not a whole lot to eat with. And my life insurance, God forbid, if something happened to me, was one and a half year salary, which meant I wasn't worth a whole lot. So look, 26 and a half, you know, 20. That's not a whole lot. Anyway, about so, 40 grand ish. <laughs> after investing for a who doctor, knows how, who knows how much? All of that time, effort, and energy just to get to that point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I was, uh, uh, so as a resident, as a surgical resident, there's the main rules of a surgical residency. And that's eat when you can, sleep when you can, and never mess with the pancreas. <laughs> so bad things happen. Then. So I heard that there was some rep bringing food, and that's where I went. And this rep was an insurance agent, and he was selling disability insurance. And I, I wasn't even invited to this dinner. I kind of crashed it. It was in the hospital. I was on call, and it wasn't even for my department, but there was food, <laughs> but and it was hungry. free. <laughs> and, uh, and it was at the county hospital, and the cafeteria was not edible. So, so the food there was not edible. So I, I went to this, to this dinner, and uh, uh, you know, there's nothing fancy. It's just some takeout food. And um, the rep there was uh, uh, an insurance rep, and he was selling disability insurance. The only person that night to end up buying a disability insurance from this representative was I. And I bought a disability insurance policy with all the options, but as a single man, I could only have one option, which basically more than doubled my disability insurance in, you know, overnight. So, but even back then, even when I was single, I was thinking of protecting my family with insurance. And insurance, the purpose of insurance is to compensate one for a loss, whatever it is. So in this case, loss of functionality, disability insurance. And that kind of disability insurance is no longer offered. That type of, because... Uh, many reasons, but doctors were take would, would had huge disability policies and were claiming pseudo disabilities when their incomes went down because of managed care, and so the insurance companies down downgraded doctors, and I basically got in like a month or two before physicians wow. were downgraded, and I I have those policies and all the options that I've exercised. I, 
as I got married, I exercised an option. And every child, I exercised an option. When I finished my training, I exercised an option. So now I'm fully exercised. And uh, you can't get such a policy today. But I still have it. And um, so, and that, that comes in later. Uh, what happened with that? Why I had that, that connection. So... I ended up getting married in 1996, and uh, uh, a month and a half before finishing my training, uh, Danielle and I had our first child. So, I was going to go into solo private practice, and so I needed some insurance to protect my family, my wife and child, and myself. So... Uh, I had an insurance agent, excellent insurance agent, a uh, friend of the family, a really good guy. And he said, you need some life insurance because I was going to finish my training and I was going to go from $50,000 of life insurance to zero. So I bought term life insurance, a million dollars of term life insurance, which was pretty cheap for somebody who's like, you know, 32 years old. Sure. Um, but it would, you know, pay off the mortgage, provide for my wife and son, should, God forbid, something happen to me. So, I got myself life insurance. And that was my first real life insurance that I purchased outside of an employer. So, time, t a little time went by. And this is in the era before there was tort reform in Texas where in tort reform in Texas meant that there are caps to how much m you can be sued for for medical, for medical malpractice. Yeah. And I've never had a malpractice lawsuit. Because you and stayed away from the pancreas? <laughs> exactly. No, because, you know, I practice good medicine. Sure. I, I try to do the best care I can, and I, I, my patients get good results. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and I'm very conscientious. So, but what happened was there was no tort reform yet. And I went to a conference and, uh, again, it was free food. And, uh, um, that's how you get doctors together. You just feed them. And I, I, I um, missed out my whole career. <laughs> and, uh, um, they were talking about it was uh, asset protection attorneys. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about medical malpractice liability. <clears throat> and they were talking about all kinds of things that were really scary. Like in Texas, where we live, your homestead is bulletproof. As long as you pay your taxes and your mortgage or whatever, nobody can take your home away. But everything else they can go after. Not a qualified retirement plan. But technically, the law could allow an IRA to be attacked, but it's never happened. But I was afraid because now I was a couple of years into practice. I was working 100-hour weeks. I was working harder than I was when I was a resident um, and sleeping maybe four hours a night, tops, and for three years straight. And, but I did very well, and I made good money. And now I heard that it was all exposed and I was afraid. So one of the things these people were talking about is that life insurance is protected in Texas. So I went to my trusted insurance agent and I told him I wanted a, a univer variable universal life insurance policy because I was young and the dot-com revolution was there and I wanted to invest in the market, but I wanted it protected in life insurance. Huge mistake. <laughs> My insurance agent, remember I said he was a good guy? Yeah. Told me he does not sell these products because they're risky. He will sell whole life insurance and he will sell term life insurance and health insurance, but not... Um, and disability. And, right. uh, no, not this particular agent. Okay. That's a different okay. agent. But uh, he would not sell a variable universal or universal life policy because he thought they were risky and uh, the value of the account can go down. 
And because of this, he would not represent any such product. But he hooked me up with somebody who would. And he sold me a variable universal life insurance policy from a company in the Midwest. It's been in business for, I don't know, 100 years, more. Household name. Household name. And, uh, and I was happy. And I put whatever spare money I had into this policy. When was this? About two- 2001, 2002, yeah, okay. something like that. Something around there. Anyway, so what happened was that that agent that sold me the life insurance policy, um, within a few months, that agent uh, quit selling insurance and went to work for Merrill Lynch or some a brokerage house. It may not have been Merrill Lynch. So I was orphaned, as you've mentioned in podcasts. I, the life insurance company, the insurance company became my agent. So they were my fiduciary. They were in charge of protecting me. And they were the life insurance company, which is really wrong. I should, I didn't know. One of the lessons I learned here is I should have found another agent because I needed somebody to represent me and give me advice and tell me what to do. But, um, And then another thing happened was I found out that the agent that sold me my disability insurance policy, within a month or two after he sold me that policy, he quit selling insurance and he became a broker too, a stockbroker as well, and went into the investment field. So I was orphaned from that policy as well. So what happened was that I now had a life insurance policy that was variable universal. And I also had my term policies that I continued to pay on. And I felt my family was protected. And then out of the blue, I got a call from a life insurance agent, an insurance agent who sells life and disability. And he told me that he was assigned my disability insurance policy that was orphaned, that I was orphaned from the agent and he wanted to meet with me I said sure so he met with me and he told me that I needed to get whole life insurance a big huge policy okay I was at this point in time I had a one or two year old child I had a three or four year old child I had uh, a mortgage on a new house was I don't know almost 8% mortgage with primary mortgage, secondary mortgage, you know, 80, 10, 10, like they used to do. And um, I was paying a lot of money on mortgage. And uh, I was paying into my variable universal life insurance policy. And he pulled out illustrations of his own life insurance policies. And he was telling me, this is what he's doing. This is where I should put my money. And this is what he's going to use to retire with. But, and he was very, very pushy. He was very, very pushy. And he told me the type of a policy, the size of a policy, and I looked at the numbers and I said, this, wow, this is a lot of money. And I didn't understand it. His being pushy helped a lot. (laughs) He's being pushy, completely turned me off. And, And I didn't understand what he was trying to sell me. And this was also a mistake because the lesson learned here is that I made an emotional decision to not get information because his personality turned me off and his selling techniques turned me off to the point where I didn't listen to what he was telling me. Now, he wasn't explaining to me the power of whole life insurance from a mutual company which is what he was selling. But he turned me off and I shut down and I'd never investigated that product. That was a mistake. Is that when you don't understand something, 
you need to investigate it. You need to figure out what is this? Is it good? Is it bad? To do your own research. And Don't I didn't make do the that. decision based on emotions. Do not make financial <clears throat> decisions based on emotions. Yeah. yeah, I didn't learn that lesson then. <laughs> I, so, so time went by. And he didn't have any food, apparently. <laughs> he, he brought no food. He came to my house. He sat in my dining room. There was no food. There was water, but no food. And, um, and he turned me off, and I didn't listen to him. And that was a huge mistake, because he was right. And uh, I found that out, I don't know, seven, eight years later. So, um, so time went by. I had life insurance, I was working hard, I was paying down my mortgage, saving in my retirement plan, doing all the things you're supposed to do to provide for your family. Um, and then what happened was we had our third child. And after she was born, um, I got a card in the mail. And the card in the mail is for financial planner. And I would guess I was in the mood to get more information. I gave the guy a call. He came to the house, met with me, and I found out the guy was an insurance agent from the same company that that pushy agent was from. Mm. But now we're several years down the road. So he sat down with me and he said, yeah, he's a you know certified financial planner, but he really is an insurance agent, works for an insurance company. And... Um, and he said, well, he told me, he asked me what my issues were, what my concerns were. And, uh, and I told him what my concerns at the time were. My concerns at the time were that, and this is always planning, taking care of my family, mm -hmm. taking care of my kids, taking care of my wife, um, was, and taking care of the future and being able to retire. So I was maximally contributing to my 401k. That's what you're supposed to do. Now I'm self-employed, so it meant that I contribute, but the match comes from me, not from a third party, like not the employer. And so, uh, but it's, you know, money that I earned would go into the 401k and I was maximally contributing. And the markets were going like gangbusters. And, and I was doing, yeah. I was doing okay. Yeah. I was doing okay. And, uh, but I did the math. It was simple math. This is the maximum I could put in the 401k, including the match. And if, and at the time I was about 45 ish. No, maybe a little younger. I was a little younger than 45. And, um, but at, at the time, um, I, uh, uh, I was like 30 right around 40 right a little or older than 40 and um i did the math that if i'm going to work for the next 25 years to 65 because that was a magic retirement number and i was going to maximum contribute to my 401k and i was going to have decent market return because there's no such thing as bear markets or downturns then i was going to be able to accumulate a certain amount of money and then take your 4% rule, which means you can withdraw 4% per year. And I calculated what that 4% was going to be. And then realized, I can't retire on that. If I follow all the rules and do what you're supposed to do, that retirement plan was not going to allow me to retire at the lifestyle that I wanted to uh, I'm glad you brought up the four percent rule because <clears throat> you know, and that basically is uh, is authored about in the '90s, and they said if you have roughly a million dollars at age 65, you can draw four percent if you don't violate that the four percent rule. You shouldn't run out of money until you're like age 95 ish, and then it's been modified a couple of times. Even the original authors have modified it twice. And as interest rates go up, you know, the, the rule goes down. Um, as interest rates go down, you know, it just changes uh, because of the effect of interest rates on the market and things like that. But I spoke about that, taking um, income with life insurance policies. And I 
referenced and did a comparison. It was brief, 30,000 foot overview, the 4% rule, income from life insurance. So I just wanted to say that I appreciate you bringing that up because, I mean, this is the pathway that you're told as the individual. Here are the contributions to the qualified plans. And then if you don't want to, want to run out of money, use a 4% rule. So, right. But we've been in a low interest rate environment since uh, the financial years. crisis. Yeah. So that my understanding is that rule has now been modified to 1.9%. But Yes, it has. And I've seen one that I think uh, I use that one as well, 1.9, but and the 4%. But then it, I think it's gone up since then to about 3 from 1.9 to 3. But I could be wrong. It may be back down to 1.9. But regardless, it wasn't going to be enough money to retire. Any any number you choose, it's not you're going to change your lifestyle. Correct. Yeah. So I told this problem to the financial planner insurance agent, and he said, "Let me have. Tell me what what assets you have, what insurance policies you have. Sign here, and then I can get information directly from the companies." And I did. And he came back a few weeks later after he did all the research, and he said, well, I looked at your variable universal life insurance policy, which has done really well to, so far because I got it right after the dot-com crash, yeah. and we didn't have the financial crisis of 2008 yet. Right. No, so from 2003 I, I to 2008, well. that should have been, yeah. Yeah, I did, well. I did really well in that yeah. policy. Yeah. So, and it's a variable universal. So it's not like an index universal where you have a cap. You actually did, I actually did very well. I made good choices. Anyway, so, so he came back and he said, I did research and your policy is a mech. And I said, what the heck is a mech? And he goes, well, it's a modified endowment contract. And I said, yeah. And that I didn't learn about that in medical school. What's a modified endowment contract? And the reason I want to bring this up is because you and Ryan bring up MEC, the word MEC, and mention that it's, it's a bad thing, don't do it, in many of your podcasts. But I knew what a MEC was after that conversation because this agent educated me. And a mech is really, really bad. You take it's not a, the end of the world, but if you can avoid it, you should. It, and you, you, how old are you about this time? Late forties. This is right around forty, early forties. Early forties. Yeah. yeah. A, a mech at age forty is terrible. <laughs> it's bad. It's bad. So what is a mech? So when you have a life insurance policy. There are tremendous amount of tax benefits. First thing is, is that this product is creditor protected. Great. Second thing is it accumulates tax-free. The next thing about life insurance, uh, universal or whole life, is that when you withdraw money from it via a loan against the policy or via withdrawal of principal, it is treated as FIFO, meaning first in, first out. And since the money you put into the policy is post-tax, the money you withdraw is untaxed because you've already paid tax on the money. On the basis. The basis. <clears throat> what you put in. Correct. Your basis. You withdraw or borrow up to your basis. No issues. Right. Now... <clears throat> When you create a MEC, a modified endowment contract, your life insurance policy is now treated like an annuity for taxation. And that's horrible. Why is this horrible? Because a bunch of IRS rules kick in. For example, if you withdraw any money before age 59 and a half, you pay an extra 10% tax penalty on any gains. Another problem is that you don't have FIFO, but rather you have LIFO, meaning last in, first out. So the last in was the money the policy earned, interest or investment income, and that's now taxed at ordinary income tax. 
not capital gains, even though you were in the market in a variable universal life insurance policy, ordinary income tax, plus a 10% penalty because I'm under 59 and a half. That means any money I take out of this policy is taxed to the hilt. This is horrible. And it basically, now, it's still a life insurance policy. Death so the death still benefit oh, yeah. is still income tax-free, but it's part of your state, which is a different yeah. problem. Mm-hmm. But the huge tax advantage of whole life or, or any life insurance policy is negated by it being a mech. So he investigated, and what happened was the second or third year that I had my policy, I had extra money. And so I decided, well, I'm going to put it in the life insurance policy where it's creditor protected. So I sent a check to the insurance company. They were my agent because my, I was orphaned. So that payment may, was a few thousand dollars over the MEC limit, and it turned my policy into a MEC. What they were supposed to do, according to every life insurance agent I ever talked to, is they were supposed to give me a warning. This would would create a mech. Do you want us to refund you the amount of money above the mech? And I would have said yes, if they would explain to me what a mech was. And they were my de facto agent, so it was their fiduciary responsibility. So I got myself a lawyer to see if I can sue them, but it was more than two years. It was years. Right. And all these years, they would send me a bill to pay my annual planned premium. So I was sending additional money into a mech and making the mech worse. Every year I was paying. So as soon as I learned all this, and I couldn't sue them because it was more than two years, but I was extremely mad at this company. That's the mistake. No no emotions. Did you... um you know, share the love of the anger across the industry and the other agents or, you know, it was like, well, I had a bad experience here. So was there any of that projected onto other agents or did you view other, you know, agents? I told other agents about this yeah. that I dealt with and, but it was an, you know, it was an agent that found this sure. and educated me yeah. and he was a great guy. So now I had this mech. So I decided, okay, I'm going to use that as for death benefit and I'm going to find a way to get back at this life insurance company if I can. Again, that's emotions. Don't do that with business or investing. (laughs) It's stupid. So he, this life insurance agent, life and disability, took over my disability policy. He came up with a solution of what I can do for my um, retirement plan problem. He said, you can contribute money into a life insurance policy, a whole life insurance policy. And, but now that you know what a MEC is, we, you c- will design the policy to accept as much money as possible up to the MEC limit. And so you'll cover the cost of insurance because there's a cost to life insurance. But then the rest of the money that goes in there buys some additional insurance. That's called a paid up addition. And it adds to your life insurance death benefit. But what it also does is it sits there as a cash value and it accumulates income tax free, creditor protected with FIFO. And those dividends that you get are not considered income. They're considered a return of premium. And therefore, it's not income. So this, this, these policies grow. And he, the way he modeled this initial policy is I was going to maximally contribute to the MEC limit. And after about seven years, the model was that I wasn't going to pay any more into this policy. It was going to continue to grow in perpetuity. And it would provide a death benefit for my family, God forbid, if something happened. And I would be able to borrow money. And since it's a loan, there's no taxation on that money. Borrow money against the policy from the life insurance company 
and use those loans as retirement funds. So I thought, this is, this is really good. This is amazing. So we're still in the early to mid-40s. So I'm still in my early 40s. So it's, seven it's, years of high premium would put you in your early 50s. Right. So, the, so, But we hadn't gotten there yet. I know. So this was now, you know, around 2005, 2006. So I got, but I still wasn't, he recommended whole life insurance policy. So I got one whole life insurance policy and an equivalent death benefit of a variable life insurance policy with this this a new company. variable a new variable okay okay that's not a met yeah but i he discouraged me i didn't listen because i didn't understand what a horrible thing a universal policy is as opposed to a, a, a real whole life now i know but then i didn't but i learned quickly so what happened oh, no, was... Oh, no, wait. You say quickly. We're going along about 10 years here. <laughs> I'm kidding. Nah, it's only been about, you know, four or five years since okay. I had my Mac, right. and and uh, and it was still performing well. Right. And when I figured out that it was a Mac, I stopped contributing money, and I, I decided that... And, and then I started experiencing some market losses. So I changed it to the fixed accounts. I was earning like 4%, 4.5%, whatever the fixed account was, because... By this point in time, I realized that if you have any market loss, you negate the growth of your policy. So whatever you do, you need to compound your growth, compound interest. And so I, convert, I got out of the market on that policy and put it there and stopped contributing because universal policies allow you to not make premium payments. It gives you the flexibility. And, um, and then... Uh, but I still had a universal policy with the new agent. But then I was I started doing the math that I was max I was going to maximally fill up this policy within seven years. And so seven or eight years. So I, I decided, well, I need still more place not to bank, but to put retirement funds away. I was in the retirement savings mode. Okay, now wh where did I learn this? I, I learned this from my parents. Um, my parents worked very hard, lived below their means, and uh, saved saved for their retirement, saved very well. My wife's parents did the same thing, so their generation was taught to work hard, make money, live below your means, and save money, and save to for your retirement. And so that's I was in that mode, and this was a good saving vehicle. So it was such a good saving vehicle that in 2012, I took out more policies on me and on my wife. And, and by this point in time, we had a fourth child. So, so now, you know, this is fast forward several years because we started around 2006. Now it's 2012 and I'm realizing... I'm not going to have room to put money in my policy because it's going to be a mech. So now I need more policies, not to bank, but to retire. Okay? So this is where I learned another lesson. I learned this is where I was wise, not smart. I learned from my parents. Mm -hmm. So one of the things my parents did was they were, art, they were doing some estate planning when... I was young and when my brother and sister were young. And as part of estate planning, you have, you know, an ex a lifetime exemption of from estate tax. And at the time, I believe this was in the 80s, that exemption was really low. So in other words, anything beyond like, 800,000 or something like that. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, very low was going to be taxed at like 60, 50, 60% estate tax. And that's where the old phrase was, you know, there's taxes and there's death and then there's more taxes. <laughs> right. So so but there was a an annual gift tax exemption. And at the time it was $10,000 if I recall in the 1980s. And what my parents did is they would gift my brother and my sister and me that amount 
into a UTMA account, into a custodial miner's account, but the money became ours with our social security number. We would earn the interest at the bank with our social security number, and we would use those funds for college, to pay for college, etc. But my parents got that money out of their estate. So when my kids were born, I learned that lesson from my parents, and I would put money away out of my estate and out of my wife's estate to my children. Into so, Utma. Y- into uniform Utma. transfer to minors. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And so all four of my children had their bank accounts with money in it. So in 2012, all four of my children got life insurance policies that they owned. And they paid for it with their money that I had gifted to them and that my wife had gifted to them. And so, why would I do such a crazy thing? Well, besides my responsibility as a husband and father to provide for my family, to protect my family, my responsibility as a parent, according to religious teachings that I've had, was that you are supposed to provide for your children to the point of teaching them a trade so that they can provide for themselves. Okay? So here I was saving for retirement with my life insurance policies for me and now for my wife. But why shouldn't my children get a head start and start younger? So our children ranged from 14 years old to four years old at the time. And so they all got a life insurance policy, life insurance policies that they owned from their own money. It was their asset, not in my estate, not in my wife's estate, in the child's estate. And they could start saving for retirement. So our youngest daughter started saving for retirement at age four. And our oldest child started saving for his retirement at age 14. And it wasn't just for retirement. Sure. It could be for, to use the money for college as well. So I took the lesson I learned from my parents of estate planning from a very young age and passed it on to my children at a very young age. And then they started saving for their retirement at a very young age. Coupled with your understanding of life insurance up to that point. Right. A whole lot, non-met. Correct. And... Every year, we contributed up to the MEC limit in every policy I had, except the variable universal life insurance. So that variable universal life insurance, after I had enough market losses and I got sick and tired, I did a 1035 exchange, meaning I converted it to a different policy, to a whole life insurance policy. But you still have the other UL. I still had the MEC. Okay. I'll get back to that. Okay. So the way that these policies were modeled was initially the original illustrations had maximal contribution to the MEC limit, which was going to be a different amount of time depending on the child's age and then the age of me and the age of my wife. So my wife and my policy, my wife's policies and my policies it would be like a seven-year pay, seven or eight-year pay. And the MEC test is a seven-year test. So it's a seven or eight-year. Th- it's it an was, initial seven-pay test. Right. And I, I'm going to throw out some pay. words that you've heard in other podcasts mm-hmm. by James and Ryan. It had a, a blended term. Blended component, PUA. Yeah. Blended yeah. PUA that as you'd contribute, the term would get bought out and become part of the whole life insurance so that by the end of those seven or eight years, there is no term in the policies. It's all whole life and and it's all paid up and you don't have to contribute anymore and the policy would continue forever. Okay. So, um, that was great. Now, I... Uh, I met with another insurance agent, the original insurance agent that that sold me my um, my uh, term? Uh, term policy, yeah. my original term policy, 
And he actually sold me, and that term policy was a 20-year term. And so in, I don't know, 2006, 2007, something like that, I realized that that term policy only had like 10 years left. So I needed another term policy. And the reason I needed another term policy is because my I didn't have an, a lot of whole life insurance at the time. So I was going to, I need, oh my goodness, I'm going to need another term policy. So I got a 30-year level term that was an unbelievable price. I was paying less money than my term policies that I got when I was in 1998. Wow. And that company was completely irresponsible because they priced their insurance too low. Oh, okay. And when in 2008, that company was rescued by the federal government. And I thought I was going to lose my policy. <clears throat> oh, yeah, yeah. I won't mention any names. So and they were that. rescued by the federal government. <laughs> and they stopped selling policies that ridiculous. But I had my ridiculous policy and the ridiculously cheap policy. And I still have it today. It was a They went into receivership term. and then they were liquidated. Somebody else, other life insurance companies stepped in and fulfilled those guarantees. And so I've got this great policy that I'm paying very little for. Keeping it. <laughs> and I'm keeping it on, and I'm hoping yeah. to not not have to use it because, yeah, sure. you know, we want to, you know, the goal is to live to 120 like Moses. And so, and so, um, so that agent uh, knew that I was just absolutely furious with the company that allowed my mech to happen. So right. he brought another agent in to try to find a solution. So if I was going to 1035 exchange it and convert it to anything else, it was also going to be a mech. Once a mech, always a mech. You cannot unmech a policy beyond that six month or 60 days. It's really one year with the Internal Revenue Code. Most companies will give you six months if you send the premium, causes a policy to mech. They're supposed to notify you that that premium Turn, would turn this policy into a mech. What do you want to do? Do you want to refund, send us back, send you back the premium, pay down a loan, or what have you? And if you don't take action or they didn't send it um, in one year, according to the Internal Revenue Code, that policy is a mech and it can never be unmeched. So that's what I learned the hard way. But now this is, I made another emotional decision in finances. I wanted the money out of that life insurance company. Yeah. And, that, and this was a mistake. So what I did was I got another life insurance policy that was index universal where I can't lose money. And it was a much larger death benefit, which means I had to buy up the death benefit, which meant that my cash value, the value of my policy went down significantly in doing that exercise. So I had a policy that was fully mature and had very little fees and suddenly I got a new policy and your biggest expense is in the first year when you get a new life insurance policy. So I made an emotional decision because I wanted my money out of that terrible life insurance policy at life insurance company even though my policy was performing okay. I wasn't losing money and um, and it was still a life insurance product, um, but I wanted it out of that company, and I ended up paying dearly for it. But what I ended up with was another mech, an Index Universal mech. With a higher face amount. With a much higher face and amount. If there's no out-of-pocket premium payment, it's coming from the account values. Right. So well, I made some premium payments for a few years okay. until I realized this is stupid. And I stopped making payments. And when I stopped making payments, they started sending me huge bills that you need to pay this much. So I basically converted to the cash account only. It's continuing to grow. It's not decreasing in value. But the problem it has to do with longevity in that policy, yeah. meaning that every year a universal life insurance policy buys a one-year term. And every year as I get older that cost of insurance is rising. Right now, it's not that high. 10 years from now, it's gonna start getting pretty high. And this is the problem with, life, with universal life insurance policies is they implode because the cost of insurance 
eats up the account value. And in order to keep up, I'm gonna need to decrease my face death amount. benefit, my yeah. face amount. <clears throat> Which will be limited. Mo I mean, most universal life policies, they have limits on how much you can lower. So you can do that. If you have a universal life policy and you're trying to manage it, and I'm not giving advice, I'm just saying one thing that can be done is like lower the face amount and pay premium. And pay right. premium, but I didn't want to send premium into a mech. Right. And so I'm not sure what I'm going to do with this policy. It may be that in the next few years, as soon as I'm 59 and a half and I don't have to pay 10% penalties, uh, I may just take the cash value and put it into my whole life insurance policies so it can grow properly. But you're a young man. The future is unknown. So. Correct. So, so now, now something else comes in. So now I have, I have policies. I've already maxed out one of my old policies. And uh, um, I got new policies for me, for my wife, and for my four children. And that was in 2012. And they have up my account. So you're they, blending your, your lessons from your headers and your people, you know, your parents, but saving, teaching your children, and you're blending them together. Correct. I love that. And so now I have these life insurance. All, our family has these life insurance policies. They're growing. They're protected. Um, and, um, and I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking that these are retirement accounts. So in 2014, I go to the Texas Medical Association meeting and there's an insurance agency that had a booth there. No food. No food. <laughs> you may have had chocolate or something. Probably. James Netherine Associates. And there was, um, at the booth, there was a doctor named Eb Samlowski and he did a podcast a while ago. And... Um, and he was telling me that he's a retired general surgeon and he's now selling life insurance and using life insurance. And that is what allowed him to retire. And he said, read this book. And he handed me Becoming Your Own Banker. It's this thick. And uh, 90 some pages. And uh, I took the book. And I went home after the conference, and I read the book. This episode went a little long because it was an amazing conversation that will continue next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.